this evening in Isaiah's gospel, chapter 13, although we've turned from the portion dealing with the messianic prophecies and much good news to a theme of judgment, I would just remind you this is not inconsistent with the day. We read this morning from the gospel of Luke chapter 2 that Isaiah, or sorry, Simeon was being allowed to depart in peace according to God's word, for his eyes had seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And then turning to Mary, his mother, Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's turn to Isaiah then and read in chapter 13 the entire chapter. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. On a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have consecrated have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of all kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land and from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon shall not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the nations tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in again for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, 
and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in its pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. There we'll end our reading and look to the Lord for his blessing. Father in heaven, when we read serious words of judgment from your mouth, we pray, Father, that we would take them into our hearts and not simply hear them with our ears and say them with our mouths, but meditate upon them and realize that the last great and final day of the Lord is coming, and we will be prepared to stand in it if we will flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and find our refuge and our hope and our strength in him alone. And now we pray, give us grace, even as we deal with a difficult subject, that you would be glorified and that we'd be built up that we'd love you all the more for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's when Isaiah begins to speak of God's judgments to come that those who are critical, and I mean critical Bible scholars, those who want to find fault with the text of Scripture, begin to find fault. Here is Isaiah in his first oracle, his first burden that God has laid upon him that he's to declare to the nations. And there are many who would say, well, God has the right to speak to Israel. They're his people. But what right does Isaiah have to speak to Babylon? And as we go on, we're going to see he doesn't have to speak to Babylon, but to many other nations, Cush and Philistia and, and Egypt and Moab. And Why is he doing that? Well, as we've seen, the gospel is international. And so is God's judgment. There aren't various rules and different portions for different peoples in different times. It's one and the same solid rule from God and law from God on which he will judge the nations on that last great day, the final day of the Lord. But here Isaiah begins to speak out against Babylon. And this is this is strange because although Babylon's been around for a long time, it probably can be traced back to the Tower of Babel, back in the book of Genesis. There's always been a city there, and it's gone through its ups and its downs. It's about to become, in a few hundred years, another noble empire. In fact, the first world empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a great and glorious city, so much that Nebuchadnezzar will boast over it. But here God says he's going to bring the, the proud arrogance, the, the pompous city to its knees. He's going to destroy it, and its destruction is going to be utter and complete and final. And we know that that happens through the Medes, who also come under God's judgment, who are mentioned here also in Isaiah chapter 13. But well, Babylon is to be judged, and God is going to utterly destroy it, so that today it is a site of ruins, Yet it's going to take a few hundred years for that to happen. It's not going to happen immediately under Nebuchadnezzar or his uh, grandson when the Medes come and overthrow the city. In fact, it's going to remain through the, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians and through the kingdom of the Greeks. All three of those kingdoms predicted by God's sending a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold the chest of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze representing the Babylonian kingdom of gold, the silver kingdom of the Medo-Persian empire, and then the bronze belly and thighs of the Greek empire. And it is going to be 
in the third century BC, I hope I got that right, uh, that the leader of the Greek Empire, a man reputed to be one of the greatest military tacticians ever, Alexander the Great, will die in Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's palace at the age of 32. And I've mentioned this to you before. It's been a while since I've been seeing it. But if you go to the Royal Ontario Museum, you can see an actual portion of the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, the glazed tiles with the Persian lions on them. They're there on display at the uh, museum in Toronto. God preserved parts of it, but the whole city is a ruin, and no longer does anyone dwell in that part of the world. And here, God spells it out. Before, before their rise, before their fall, God says what's going to happen. And if we don't believe in God, we say, well, this is impossible. How can God know what's going to happen? But when we believe in a God who is sovereign over the universe, who has ordained everything from beginning to end, this doesn't take us aback. It doesn't throw us off our stride. It doesn't shake our faith. When God declares his oracle concerning Babylon through Isaiah, the son of Amos, by showing him this vision, by showing him what is, is going to happen, and it's going to happen in the sight of all the nations. There's, there's hints and, and things that point that. It's happening on a bare hill. It's, it's lifted up. There's nothing to hide what God is going to do from the sight of men. And God is going to raise up the nations. And just as he raised up the Assyrians to punish his people in the northern kingdom and to, and to chastise the, the southern kingdom as well and then punish them for their inequity, so he's going to lift up Babylon and he's going to cast them down. He has commanded armies to be raised up against them, even the, the Medes and the Persians. And all the earth is going to be gathered together against this proudly exalting city. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, he says in verse 6. The day of the Lord is a phrase we find about 20 times in Holy Scripture. Twice in Isaiah, and both times here in chapter 13. In fact, the book of the Bible that speaks of the day of the Lord most frequently is the rather small prophecy of Joel. And one of those references to the day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2 is found repeated again in Acts chapter 2. And I think we all probably know the context, don't we, of Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost when God says he will pour out his spirit on all flesh after the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord speaks of God's coming judgment. Every time we read the day of the Lord, those 20 places in scripture, it's always talking about God's coming judgment which will ultimately end in the final day when Christ returns, as Paul writes in Thessalonians 2 and Peter writes in 2 Peter, that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It will come suddenly upon God's people. And so there's a tendency when we read this, the day of the Lord, we, we think of the very end of human history. But we shouldn't think that way. When we read this phrase, the day of the Lord, we, could, we should think of God's day of judgment. There's a day of judgment coming for Babylon. There's a day of judgment that affects the whole world in the coming of Jesus Christ. We should see the day of Christ's crucifixion as a day of judgment. The day of his birth, 
It's not a day of judgment. It's a, joy, a day of, of joy and praise. We, we sing a praise about how, how wonderful it is. This good news, the, the, the child is given, the son is born. All this wonderful message of a, a gospel hope of salvation that is to come through the birth of Christ. But he will fall under the judgment of God on Calvary. And the day of the Lord will come then and a judgment from God, just as a judgment has come in the past. Whether it's in the day of Noah or the days of Moses when God's judgment comes upon Egypt or the day of the Lord here spoken of that will come upon the city of Babylon and that proud empire. All this points forward to that final day. And God has the right to reserve his judgment and to hold all nations accountable before him. So we should act appropriately. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty will come. And we might think, well, that's, that's good advice for pagan nations. That's good advice for those who don't know the gospel. But it's good advice for every one of us. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to believers. He's writing to believers and reminding them that they need to follow on in the faith and not go back to the past ways that were now put out of gear, as it were, when the sun has come and the ceremonial law has all been fulfilled. He tells us that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The final judgment will be a fiery judgment. And we're told that we should not trample under blood the, underfoot the blood of the covenant by which we've been sanctified or outrage the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Hebrews 10.31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we might think that we are immune from that. We might think, well, this is a warning for, for those. But it's a warning we need to take to heart, each and every one of us. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a li living God. He is a living God, a loving God, a merciful God, but he will not countenance sin and rebellion. He will not put up with iniquity, whether it's in his covenant people or in the nations around. Before him, every human heart will melt. They will be dis dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. Isaiah 13, 8 tells us, they will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. There's a sense here in which if we continue in rebellion against God, we are going to be dismayed. We are going to not want the company of one another, and we are going to be shame-faced, even as Adam and Eve were in the very beginning when they rebelled against God. And then again, in Isaiah 13, we have this second reference, the, the second and last reference that Isaiah will make. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. 
Here, the Lord is talking about the judgment that he's going to bring upon Babylon. He's going to bring it upon them, and they are going to be struck down, and when they're finally destroyed, they will not arise again. It's taken years of human history for this to, to happen, but it has been accomplished. So that the final words that are given here of the animals dwelling in Babylon, that has come to pass. And for a long time before the ruins were excavated and was found again, that was exactly what happened. And that shouldn't surprise us, as I've said, because when God says something, we expect it to happen. And we're not surprised when it does. It's easy, however, to look at this passage and see it as, as you know, so cataclysmic, so end of the world, so, so final in its judgment. Remember, we looked at this from Matthew chapter 24, this quotation that Jesus draws upon when he speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem. He speaks of the destruction of, of Babylon, and he quotes verse 10, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Jesus says that's going to happen on the day when Jerusalem is punished. And he's referring back to the punishment of Babylon, and people are saying, well, no, if the, if the sun and the moon, if there's no light, then, well, that's the end of the world. But clearly in Isaiah 13, it's not the end of the whole world. It's the end of Babylon. Babylon, as a world empire, is going to be brought down. And it's going to be brought down because of pride. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled in his pride, but his grandson rose up in pride again. And you remember in the book of Daniel, we have that picture of a feast, or a, I guess the picture is rather the vignette, this, this description of how Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is feasting with all his nobles, and he calls for the, the temple utensils, the, the cups and the flagons and everything to be brought out. And they, they begin to use them in their carousing and their drinking from, from the, the, the vessels that were used only by the priests of God. And they began to praise the gods of gold and silver and wood. And they began to, to make a mockery of the living and true God. And in the midst of that, the hand writes upon the wall. You remember, the hand not attached to anybody. Meeny, meeny, tikal, you parson, comes the writing on the wall. And the king is dismayed. His face turns and he's frightened. He can't make this out. And Daniel has to be brought in and he can interpret. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Judgment is coming. And still he says, oh, I'm going to give you the reward, I promise. Put the, put the robe on him. Put the gold necklace around him. Give, give him the things that I said. But that very night, the Medes and the Persians come in through the canal that has been dried out into the city, and while the party is winding down, the empire is ending. God said it, and he did it. And it must have seemed like the end of the world to the Babylonians, but it wasn't the end of the world, and it wasn't even the physical end of Babylon at that time. As I said, it went on for several hundred more years. Alexander the Great would conquer it and would there meet God himself. God says, I will punish the world for its evil 
the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. <coughs> God hates pride. God hates it when we exalt ourselves above one another. And most of all, when we take credit for the things that he has done. Let's stick with the Babylonian theme for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar is warned in another dream. And Daniel comes to him and interprets the dream and he speaks to him in most humble and endearing terms. Oh king, I wish this dream was not for you but for one of your enemies. This great tree that you've seen chopped down and its stump bound with iron. This is you, O king. You are, you are a vast tree that filled the earth, the, gave shelter to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and provided food. This was you, O king. But the judgment of God is going to come upon you unless you turn. Turn from your pride. Turn and, and do what is right. And for a while, Nebuchadnezzar listened. He heeded the warning. But isn't that the case with all of us? We hear a warning, we take it seriously, and for a while we heed it. We, we listen, we say, okay, you know. And then one day, as Nebuchadnezzar walks through the city that he has built, he was a great builder, a great civic engineer and project manager. He, he loved all the work he was doing, and he was very good at it. He's renowned in history beyond the Bible for this. And he looks over and he sees the magnificence of the city and he says, oh, Babylon that I have built. He doesn't give glory to God. He doesn't give thanks to God for giving him the ability and the strength and the wherewithal to, to produce this lovely city, one of the marvels of the ancient world, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And God strikes him, makes him like a beast, so that he crawls around eating grass. But then as he is humbled, his mind is brought back to him and he's restored. And what a miracle that this is. For it wasn't often that ancient potentates, ancient kings could show weakness and survive. But no one took his realm from him, for God had determined to humble him. It wasn't time yet. Do not call us... Do not think of God's patience as, as weakness, Peter tells us, when he brings up the, the day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night. God is patient, but his wrath will come in the day of his fierce anger. And it's described here in some rather graphic and brutal language. We don't need to go into that, but we need to not be appalled in the sense that we think God is cruel or unjust or unfair. It mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. The Babylon will be like them. And you know, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we, you know, we get a sense of certain, a certain sense of righteousness, don't we? Well, they got what they deserved. You know, they were, they were a wicked, violent, immoral city. Have you ever thought about it for a moment? It was a city like any other city, like the city of London. Not as big, obviously. But it was a city. It had all manner of people living in it. It had families. There were children. And the wrath of God was poured out upon it in fire and brimstone, and they all perished. We don't know God's every intention 
when it comes to the death of children. People have said that the Westminster Confession of Faith is just copping out when it says all elect infants dying in infancy shall immediately pass into glory. Well, yes, that is a bit of a cop-out, but we just don't know. Some have wanted to say, well, we know that all infants who die go to heaven, but we don't have biblical warrant for really saying that. In fact, it's an unbiblical view of humanity that drives men to that, for our children are all born in sin. And you confess that, you parents, when you present your children for baptism. And it should not simply be something we say, but something that we believe. And we realize that our children are born in sin and, and by nature objects of wrath, even as we were. But God is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. And he deals with our children in his perfect mercy. We don't have any right to question his determination. We can trust in his character, but in the whole of his character, not just picking out the bits that we like. We, we, we don't have the right to engage in smorgasbord theology. You know, or maybe smorgasbord is kind of an old-fashioned term. Maybe we could call it the church luncheon policy. You know, you go by the table, you take a bit of this and a bit of that, and if there's something you don't like, well, you just leave it on the plate. When we read the Bible, we can't have that attitude. We can't, we can't pick and choose what we like here. We have to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. You overthrow the wicked, but you're merciful and kind. It's like I told you this morning. You know, God doesn't need us. Yes, but he loves us. You're right, he loves us, but he doesn't need us. He is merciful, but that doesn't mean he must show mercy to all of creation. It's been said that if there was one heresy that most Christians believe were tr was true, it is, the, it is the heresy of universalism. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every man, woman, and child ever born was in heaven and there was no hell? But the reality is there is a heaven and there is a hell, and it is God who determines the population of each. He calls us to live with our eyes fixed on heaven and to realize the reality of his judgment that is to come. And that's why we have passages like this before us. That's why Jesus Christ came into this world to deliver us from hell, to deliver us from destruction. Will we heed his warning and his offer of gracious assistance the free offer of the gospel is a reality. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All who come will receive rest from Jesus, who says, I will take your burden, and I will give you my yoke, an easy yoke, a light yoke, a, a yoke of obedience and, and love to God, and I will take away the, the guilt of your sin and your enslavement to wickedness. And I will set you free from death and give you life in its place. See, the reality of human history is this, that either the judgment of God 
is borne away by Christ on the cross in a moment, or else the judgment of God is borne by those who will not flee to Christ, and it will be borne for all eternity, cut off from the grace of God and his love forever. Praise be to God, however, because he has loved us and given us his son so that we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be worried about falling into the hands of a, a living God who's going to destroy us. But we see ourselves as recipients of forgiveness from a loving God who made us for himself and has given his son to be our savior. And so when we read of judgment, when we read of God's hatred of sin, particularly the sin of pride, let's humble ourselves before the mighty God, confident that he will lift us up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us a greater vision of your loving kindness and your mercy. We pray that we would not turn away from the themes of judgment and destruction that will come on the wicked, that we would recognize, O oh Lord, that you are merciful and kind to all you have made, and that you call us to live humbly and obediently before you. Give us strength to do so, that you would be glorified, that we would live in faith, and that Jesus Christ would indeed reign in our hearts and lives for your glory and praise now and forever. Amen.